there. Welcome back to Just Us and the Law, a Mitchell Hamlin Law Review podcast. Today's episode, we're changing it up a little bit. Instead of an interview moderated by Law Review staff, we'd like to share the audio from the recent panel for reproductive rights hosted in January by Mitchell Hamlin Law Review, which also included a focused discussion on the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case that was before the Supreme Court this term. Mitchell Hamlin's very own Dean Nadwicki moderated the panel, which included professors Laura Hermer, Mike Steenson, and Joanna Woolman, with introductions presented by Vice Dean Jim Hilbert. We are thankful for the time all of our panelists were able to give to this event to address emerging questions regarding reproductive rights, and we hope that you enjoy this episode as much as we've enjoyed the event. All right, everyone, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. My name is Katherine Raths, and on behalf of the Mitchell Hamlin Law Review, we are so excited to be hosting this important panel today on reproductive rights. At this point, I am going to turn the conversation over to Vice Dean Hilbert for the introduction. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Katherine. I'm Jim Hilbert. I'm Vice Dean here at Mitchell Hamlin, and I I want to thank the, the members of the Law Review and Catherine Rass, who's the editor-in-chief of the Law Review, for setting this up. This topic is extraordinarily important. Uh, the Dobbs case may be the most consequential abortion case in a generation, and I, I really thank the Law Review for organizing this, and I thank all of you for attending. I think this is, uh, this is we're going to pack a lot into this hour. And uh, I think this is an extraordinarily important conversation. So thanks for joining. And I'm gonna thank the panelists in advance. I'm gonna give very brief introductions of each of the panelists so that we can get moving. And then I'm gonna turn it over to our, uh, our president and Dean. Uh, our panelists are, are really a, a kind of a who's who on campus uh, on this topic. Um, Laura Hermer is a professor of law here at Mitchell. Her current research focuses on reproduction is reproductive issues and access to health coverage and care uh, throughout the country with a particular focus on underserved populations and population health. Mike Steenson is the Bell Distinguished Professor of Law here at Mitchell. He teaches in the areas of tort and constitutional law. And Joanna Woolman is a professor of law and director of the Institute for Children, Families, I'm sorry, and director of the Institute to Transform Child Protection. She teaches and researches in issues of constitutional law and feminist legal theory. Our moderator today is none other than Anthony Nidwicki, our president and dean. Uh, in addition to those duties, he is also a longtime advocate on constitutional rights and on the right to privacy in particular. Uh, one quick housekeeping note. If you have any questions during the... Uh, the webinar, please put your questions into the chat and we will do our best to address as many of those as we can. So with that, again, thank you very much. Thanks for joining. I'm gonna turn things over to Dean Midwicky. Dean, it's all yours. Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> it's really nice uh, that you're all here for this really, really important conversation. So I'm just gonna go ahead and jump right in and ask our first question. And this is directed to our resident um, great reproductive rights scholar here at the school, uh, uh, Professor Laura Hermer. Could you give us a brief overview of, of the Dobbs case and also talk a little bit about the Texas case that was decided a little earlier this term and how that may differ or align with, with the Dobbs case? Okay, well, um, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll start by just talking about the, the state laws, the two state laws in question uh, that, that gave rise to these challenges. So the first one in, in Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, um, that involves uh, Texas's uh, SB8, the Senate Bill 8, which is now law. Um, and it, it was specifically designed to evade the pre-enforcement challenges uh, to limitations on abortion rights that have scuttled all previous so-called heartbeat laws, laws, uh, state laws that ban abortion at about six weeks of pregnancy. So SBA requires physicians to test for cardiac activity before performing an abortion. And um, if cardiac activity, which you know again starts at about six weeks um, after 
uh, the, the pregnant person's last menstrual period. Um, so if that cardiac activity is detected, then abortions are prohibited, except in the event of a medical emergency, a term which is not defined in the legislation. So no state actor may enforce Senate Bill 8, but it instead deputizes any private individual to enforce the act against the physician who performed an abortion and anyone who may have aided in getting the abortion carried out. And if successful, um, then the, uh, the, the plaintiff may collect a, a bounty of $10,000 from each defendant for each violation. And by the way, while SBA doesn't mention it, uh, the, the Texas Occupations Code also allows the Texas Medical Board, for example, to take action against a physician's medical license for violating Texas laws involving the practice of medicine, which presumably, although not expressly, includes Senate Bill 8. And then in Whole Women's, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, and then in, in, in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, um, that is a, a Mississippi case, it involves a Mississippi state law, HB 1510, or the Gestational Age Act. And it's, it was passed in 2018 and bans almost all abortions after 15 weeks, except in the case of medical emergencies and severe fetal abnormalities. And the law, by the way, makes no exceptions for rape, rape or incest. Um, violators are guilty of a felony punishable by up to 10 years in jail and will also have their medical license suspended or revoked. Uh, the pregnant person, however, may not be prosecuted. Okay, good. Professor Steenson, give us a little bit of overview of the constitutional issues that um, is in the Dobbs case. You're, you're on mute. There we go. We have to start with Roe versus Wade in 1973, which really is a follow-up on the Supreme Court's 1964 decision, Griswold versus Connecticut, um, sanctioning a fundamental right to privacy. In Roe versus Wade, that right to privacy was extended to a woman's right to choose, and the court adopted a trimester framework in which really viability was the key in determining whether or not states' interests at any point were sufficient to override a woman's right to choose, particularly in the first trimester. All right, well, Roe, of course, was subject to repeated challenges as state legislatures induced waves of legislation intending to limit Roe versus Wade and to try to get a case before the Supreme Court that would prompt the Supreme Court to overrule Roe versus Wade. Um, the court came close in the 1980s, but had a shot at the fundamental premise of Roe versus Wade in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which involved um, various pieces of Pennsylvania uh, abortion control legislation, which the court actually had previously held unconstitutional six years earlier, the court reconsidered Roe versus Wade, and the court decided that really the fundamental premise of Roe versus Wade, the central premise that abortions prior to viability could not be subject to regulation absent some important interest on the part of the state prior to viability. So that's the key. The court says that's the central holding of Roe versus Wade. Prior to viability, a woman has a right to choose. Now, the state can regulate insofar as it doesn't impose an undue burden on a woman's right to choose. An undue burden means a substantial obstacle. So that's where the law stands. But once again, state legislatures, seeing what the potential limitations were on Planned Parenthood versus Casey, continued to enact restrictive legislation which very often was upheld, the undue burden standard, I don't think personally had significant teeth in it. Um, well, to fast forward, then we can come to the court's decision in 2016 in um, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. In that particular case, the court was dealing with restrictive state legislation, and this is legislation uh, coming out of 
Florida that required uh, physicians who uh, performed abortions to have admitting privileges in nearby hospitals and that facilities that performed abortions um, meet state surgical center standards. All right, now the court held those statutes unconstitutional under this undue burden standard, balancing the state's interest in providing safe means of abortion against a woman's interest in this fundamental right to privacy. Again, central holding of uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. All right, now we come four years later to June Medical Services versus Russo, the same issue arises in June Medical as in um, the Hellerstadt case, except the state differs. Now we're dealing with Louisiana, which did the same thing. All right, so the Supreme Court, 5-4 decision. Justice Ginsburg is still on the court at this point in time. Justice Ginsburg, along with four other members of the court, including Chief Justice John Roberts, based upon stare decisis, decides that Hellerstadt controls. Chief Justice Roberts said he didn't like the balancing test, but felt compelled to hold that the legislation was unconstitutional based upon the authority of the Hellerstadt case. All right, so now we come to the basic issue involved in the Dobbs case, as Professor Hermer points out. Now, the issue in Dobbs is whether or not, um, one issue is whether or not the uh, 15-week abortion limitation is constitutional. Of course, that's significantly before the viability line that Planned Parenthood versus Casey drew. The critical issue in the case is whether or not Roe versus Wade should be overruled, or more specifically, whether or not the central holding in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that a woman has a right to choose prior to viability, subject to this undue burden standard, whether or not that central holding in Roe versus Wade should be overruled. So that's where we are. Is the central holding going to be overruled? Should Roe versus Wade, the decision that says that a woman has a fundamental right to choose, be overruled? And of course, what are the consequences of those decisions? All right, good. <clears throat> Professor Woolman, um, what do you see are the potential outcomes in this particular case? And do you have a prediction for how the court's going to go? Um, well, you know, I don't think it looks good for Roe, to be honest. Um, and I'm, I'm just, um, there's a few things that make me think it's heading in that direction. And that is largely based on my listening to the oral arguments and looking at some of the other briefs filed. Um, and I mean, I know other, like, I see there, Brad, some of my colleagues, like, I don't know how much you could predict from questions that the court asked during oral arguments, but I would say that, um, the, the Roberts very much seemed like he wanted to find some middle ground. Like, could we come down to 15 weeks? Could we hold on to Roe? Could we somehow say that, okay, if vi the viability line may be arbitrary, we're not going to hold on to that, but there's still, we're still going to like let the central holding in Roe stand. And it did not seem like he had um, any interested participants in that theory. It seemed like the other justices were, were very comfortable in their line of questioning with the idea of, um, outright overturning Roe. And um, obviously that will have huge, if that happens, that will have huge consequences. Um, and there's there's a lot of things that I think that we would need to consider with those consequences. Um, one thing that, uh, that struck me is some of the conversation around and Justice Kavanaugh talking about how the idea of remaining neutral here would really be just to leave this to the states, right? That, that, that the idea of neutrality here is to let the states decide. And I think that's actually like a, a really dangerous proposition because um, throwing this back to the states will create a ton of chaos and turmoil in terms of state legislatures being inundated, at least from my perspective, with these kinds of bills. Um, so I think there's a, a lot of conversation we could have. Um, my prediction would be that, you know, come July of next summer, we are looking at a very, very different landscape um, in terms of a woman's right to have an abortion. And I think the reality is um, a lot of other decisions that rely upon privacy holdings that stem from the Griswold line of cases may also be potentially at risk. Well, Professor Hermer or Steenson, do you have anything to add or anything that you 
you uh, want to reflect on as well? Go ahead, Mike, if you want to go first. I certainly have. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Professor Stinson. I could go on for the next two or three hours at least. Um, I think that uh, that uh, there are an awful lot of things to think about if Roe versus Wade is overruled. What that does is to return any analysis of restrictive abortion legislation to nothing other than the lowest level of constitutional review, which is rational basis review. And rational basis review carries with it deference to state legislatures or to Congress for that matter. And we've already seen in cases such as Gonzalez versus Carhartt, just exactly what that deference can do. That's the partial birth abortion case. So under a rational basis review standard, there would be virtually no way to challenge a complete ban on abortions subject to exceptions for the life or health of the woman who's involved. So if it's rational basis review, there's really gonna be no way to challenge uh, restrictive abortion legislation. And it could be coming, depending on a break and how the elections work, it could be coming to Minnesota if there is Republican control of the legislature and the uh, governor's office. Um, you can just bet that Minnesota would follow along with the states that impose significant restrictions on abortion. Now, it's really interesting the way the oral arguments were set up as to the impact. Professor Woolman raised this question as to the impact of this case on other decisions. Let's just take the same-sex marriage cases, Windsor and Obergefell versus Hodges. Are they somehow weakened? Well, it's really interesting to listen to General Stewart's arguments, Solicitor General Stewart uh, of the uh, state of Mississippi, uh, arguing that uh, overruling Roe versus Wade would not touch decisions such as Obergefell. And he says that the reason for that is that a woman's right to choose is different than any of those other constitutional rights. The right to marry, right to determine how to raise one's children. It's different because no one exercising those rights is killing another person. So he takes pains and you can almost see a Chicago type tap dance He's taking pains to try to distinguish Obergefell versus Hodges. Um, now, I'm sure we'll end up getting to the stare decisis question. Um, there are factors, I suppose, that would counsel um, sustaining um, the fundamental right to marry as it was applied in Obergefell versus Hodges. Certainly, the reliance interest is extremely strong. But even the Solicitor General is saying, look, no, we just, we, we, let's just focus on the abortion question. These other very important fundamental rights are not gonna be affected if Roe versus Wade is overruled. Now, if you believe that, as the saying goes, I have swampland in Florida, I'd like to have you take a look at it. Yeah, of course, the, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the Texas Right to Life brief, I, I think was, um, you know, which was, Penned, uh, or was, was penned in part by by Jonathan Mitchell, who who was the uh, the the mastermind behind Texas SB eight. Um, it, it, it was very clear that um, it had Lawrence and Obergefell um, and substantive due process more generally in its gun sites. Um, so it, you know we're not just talking about. Roe and Casey falling. We're, we're talking about a host of other cases potentially, potentially being subject to challenge and being overturned. Um, so to the extent that various rights are not already protected by federal statute or by state constitution um, or other relevant law, um, we're, we're looking at rights that many of us all of us, um, to one extent or another, have taken for granted um, potentially being subject to challenge and disappearing. So I want to get back just a little bit to the case and some of the oral arguments we've heard. Um, and something that Professor Woolman said, you know, um, Chief Justice Roberts um, trying to find some middle ground here and maybe just eliminating the idea of viability as part of the test. Um, let's go back to that 
what would that actually look like um, if they're trying to keep the right to privacy intact, but doing away with this viability test? What would the jurisprudence look like for reproductive rights after that? That's open to anybody who wants to take that type of question. Professor Woolman, do you have any idea? In the uh, oral arguments um, that um, there's a really a strong, and, and especially I suppose, uh, General uh, Pelagor, she's really, really trying to maintain that viability line. And the argument is there's no other principled way to determine whether or not a woman has a right to choose. Now, of course, a viability line uh, could be drawn wherever the state says it should be drawn. Uh, and the viability line changes, of course, based upon the development of medical science, but that doesn't change the fundamental central holding, once again, of Roe versus Wade. But the argument is that that's the only principled place to draw the line. And if you don't draw the line at liability, um, when do you draw the line? Fetal pain, um, which is subject to, uh, uh, to dispute, uh, at least to some extent. Medical science, I guess, is not settled. Um, so maybe you draw the line at, uh, at, uh, at fetal pain rather than, uh, rather than viability. And where does that get you? You keep pushing the line back so far that any other standard would make it virtually impossible because many people aren't going to realize, women are not going to realize that they're pregnant um, until those lines uh, or those, those particular marks have passed. So if viability is gone and we're back to rational basis review, once again, uh, that's a deferential standard and the state can do whatever it wants to do, including a complete ban. So really the ultimate question is, is a complete ban gonna be constitutional? Well, sure, how can it not be? Is there any other middle ground here? Um, because what we've seen on some of these controversial cases, especially under the leadership of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, is trying to find some common ground on a real controversial case, cases just to keep the credibility of the court um, you know, good. And so is what, what might be one of those middle grounds? I mean trying to win over Justice Kagan to maybe sign on or concur into an opinion that might be able to do something because we've seen her do that a little bit when they really try to limit the holding um, of a case that's controversial. Is there some middle ground out there? Well, General Student uh, Stewart, uh, Mississippi's Solicitor General, was asked whether or not there would be middle ground of what it might be. And he said he thought some variation of the undue burden standard and he didn't really have a chance to refine that, uh, lucky for him, um, because the questioning then went in a different direction. But he said refinement of an undue burden standard. All right, so undue burden. Now keep in mind and that the majority of the justices has already rejected the undue burden standard, at least under a Casey regime. All right, so um, if the uh, undue burden standard does apply, then pretty clearly, Chief Justice Roberts included, and he pretty clearly says, says this, um, in June Medical, uh, we don't balance interests under an undue burden standard. We don't balance the state's interest against a woman's right to, uh, a right to choose. He said that's like trying to compare the length of a line to the weight of a rock. All right, so if we don't do balancing, then what does undue burden mean? Um, well, isn't a complete ban on abortions um, an underburden? And if it is, then where do we draw the line? So it's really circular and it's impossible under an undue burden standard to figure out how it might apply in situations where there is in fact a complete ban. I can't see what the intermediate standard would be, even if a majority of the justices were inclined to try to provide or develop some middle ground. Yeah, yeah. Professor Herman. Well, yeah, well, well, I, I agree with Professor Woolman that uh, Roe and Casey are, are likely to be overruled entirely here. But um, if there were some middle ground, um, and if Justice Roberts were, it, it is possible that he might be able to convince um, 
enough members of the court. I don't think so. I don't think he quite has it. Um, I, I could see where the uh, the the uh, pro choice, you know, the justices who, who believe there, there should be a constitutional protection for abortion um, to draw the line at, say, the first trimester, say, say the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. But I, I don't think that, there, that, that you have enough justices who, who would support that. And without the viability line, um, as, as Professor Steenson was saying, I, I, don't, I don't see where we end up with protection, any meaningful protection for a right uh, to abortion. Well, and I, I mean, part of it too, I think that, and I know we'll get to talking about stare decisis, but I mean, my interpretation of that oral argument was that the individuals, you know, representing um, people who support abortion, like walked into a twilight zone where it was as though the constitutional right that has been well-defined for 40 or 50 years suddenly flew out the window and like didn't exist anymore. And so I think that reality of having to grapple with how are they actually going to undo what has been upheld multiple times, I think is going to be a, a fascinating opinion to read um, as they walk back a fundamental right um, based on, you know, what we know about stare decisis, the, the, the data simply and the, the demographics and statistics do not support um, their particular viewpoint or analysis about what's happening and, and prevailing community views around um, the rights to abortion in America. So I I don't mean to hijack the conversation, but I do think that it will be interesting to see how um, how this is done. So let's talk a little bit about star decisis. Um, what happens if this is if they completely, you know, overturn decades of of law here? What does that do for our judicial system and constitutional law in general? Professor Hummer, you want to start with that one? I, I, I mean, I, I think that we've we've talked a, a, a little bit about this or touched on this um, a little bit already. I think it, it looks rather bad, not not just for abortion rights, um, but for other areas that are contingent on on substantive due process. Um, and um, I, it was interesting. Um, I, I mean, a number of, of, of commentators have been very concerned about you know, the, the, the expenditure of, of, of political capital that uh, the, the court would need to make in order to overturn Roe and Casey. But I, I think that they have been, you know, that the new justices have been charged with spending precisely that capital and they are quite prepared to do so. Anything to add, Professor Steenson? Lots. Um, <laughs> I think that um, the way the oral arguments went, you can certainly see the justices setting up their particular positions on, on stare decisis. If we stuck to a decision just because it was old, then the Supreme Court really never would have ruled Plessy versus Ferguson through Brown versus the Board of Education. The key point that those justices make is the decision, if it's wrong at the time, uh, is wrong at the time. And simply because it's old doesn't mean that it wasn't wrong. All right, so compare Roe versus Wade to Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, nothing really changed during that period of time. Um, it was an agonizing series of decisions to finally get to Brown versus the Board of Education, which was just really sort of an intermediate stop. But I guess the key point is, uh, if a case is wrong when it's decided, why should stare decisis prevent the justices from holding that that decision is wrong now? Simply because of the passage of time doesn't make an erroneous decision a correct decision. So we have the Brown versus the Board of Education line to follow. We have Baker versus Carr to follow. Any one of a number of instances in which the court has overruled prior precedent. 
because it was wrong when it was decided, most recently in the Janus case um, involving agency fee arrangements in uh, Illinois for public union employees or non-union public employees. Um, we have the court willing to take a shot at, um, at uh, Employment Division versus Smith from 1990. Pretty clearly the court at some point is going to overrule the Smith case. Well, if it was wrong in 1990, it's wrong now. I don't care what happens in between, so the argument goes, it just doesn't make any difference. Wrong then, wrong now. So okay. that's the argument. Wouldn't uh, it be interesting? Overruling. Wouldn't it be interesting in that line of, of arguments that they also cite to Bowers v. Hardwick and overturning in Lawrence? I mean, <laughs> that'd be a kind of take a lot of uh, intellectual manipulation there uh, to be able to kind of point to that <laughs> as a right to privacy that was decided wrong. Um, well, that's a really good decision to uh, to focus on for people who are interested in seeing how stare decisis plays out. Bowers versus Hardwick, <clears throat> if you're not familiar with the case, it's a 1986 case involving the question of whether or not a Georgia homosexual sodomy statute was unconstitutional. The court said no. Um, and then finally, in 2003, in Lawrence versus Texas, the court overrules Bowers versus Hardwick. Things have changed, the court said. Well, in dissent, Justice Scalia says, oh, really? I don't think they've changed at all. Uh, there's absolutely no justification for overruling Bowers versus Hardwick because of changing circumstances. Um, I guess a key point here is that stare decisis is malleable. It's manipulable. What, but what does that do to, does that make the court seem political? Because it seems to be changing. And then we also have a special circumstance here where you have two justices that people would argue weren't legitimately, you know, shouldn't have been put on the court because of, of reasons for not voting on the Obama appointee, but then turning around and, and appointing somebody for Trump, you know, only a couple of days before the election. Um, what does that do to the credibility, Professor Woolman or Hermer on that one? I mean, I think it's a, I think it's, I think it's a huge issue, but I think what was clear in that argument is like, if they have the votes, I don't know how much it matters. I agree with Professor Hermer that um, they do not seem bothered. The conservative branch of the court does not seem bothered by that, by the optics on this. Um, and it was fast. I mean, they appointed Coney Barrett and this case came up, I think much more quickly than I anticipated that it would. Um, so it seems extremely, um, it just seems all very, very planned to some extent. And I don't, I don't honestly know if it matters to the justices sitting on the court or to, to all of them. Um, I think it's really concerning um, for a lot of different issues that we've already talked about. And I think it's also, I mean, for people listening today in terms of like, how do you go about framing your perspectives about the legitimacy of one of the branches of government that makes decisions for our entire country, right? I mean, the sort of annihilation of spirit that can come from being a law student or a law professor when you see this sort of thing happening, I think is also something worth acknowledging, right? That this is um, troubling. This is a very troubling situation. Is there the possibility that maybe, and this is one of the questions from the audiences, what are the chances that at least one of the justices may bow out of an opinion or um, dissent um, on the idea that this is really just a political question um, and not really something that the Supreme Court should be looking at? Is there that possibility at all? Well, I don't think the court's going to uh not decide the question because it's a political question. The court's deciding political questions all the time. Um, and that's just simply the nature of the court. It's a different court, different than all other courts because of the kind of precedent that it sets. But very often social problems become political problems and then those political and social problems become legal problems. Sometimes the political system just doesn't move fast enough. And that was certainly the origin of pro-choice movement. Uh, it was so difficult to get legislative traction that finally um, it was clear that the only way uh, to try to move things forward was through litigation. Um, 
it's the nature of the institution of the Supreme Court of the United States that it has to decide these inherently political questions. And it certainly isn't going to abstain uh, from that uh, from that duty. Of course, it's highly politicized. The cases came to the court uh, from Roe versus Wade on as highly politicized cases. But the court has to resolve those distinctions based upon constitutional principles. And of course, one of the arguments is this neutrality argument that I believe uh, Professor Hermer mentioned uh, that Justice Kavanaugh has advanced. Look, let's just turn it back to the way it was. These are, in fact, political questions. And this, of course, was the constant drumbeat of Anton Scalia. These are political questions. They ought to be resolved in the political arena. These aren't questions that are fit for decision by the court. And so that's, in effect, what would happen if the court overrules Roe versus Wade. It now becomes a political question to be fought out state by state. And I, I think that we've, we've already seen, you know, especially in recent years, what a lot of states are already going to be doing. And so I think Professor Woolman had, had mentioned that there, there might uh, be an, an onslaught of legislation in states um, you know, depending on, on, on the outcome in Dobbs and with the likely outcome in Dobbs. Um, but I think we've already seen this. And you know, we, we have uh, trigger laws um, in about half of all states where uh, abortion will become illegal, um, either because laws making abortion illegal um, prior to Roe v. Wade remained on the books, um, and that's, that's in a handful of states, including, I believe, Wisconsin, um, or there are trigger laws saying, in the event that <laughs> Roe versus Wade and, and Planned Parenthood v. Casey are, are, are overturned, then abortion becomes illegal in the state. Um, so, so we already know some of what is going to happen, and, and, and it's already in place in many of the states where we're, we're, we're likely to see the most interest in that sort of action. So let, let's just assume that the, the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade and Casey. Um, is there anything that the federal government can do in order to advance uh, the right to abortion? I mean, one of the things the FDA permanently has made a decision recently to permanently allow abortion pills to be mailed across the country. Are there, would that up, be upheld, do you think? Or um, could there be some changes made to that? Um, uh, other than through the political process? Um, and what other things could the Biden administration or the federal government do in order to um, provide people the right to, to abortion? I can talk about the, the Mifeprex REMS. You know, the, the, um, so with respect to medication abortion, there, there are, just to, to add a, a little bit of information, there, there, there are two medications that are involved in medication abortions. Medication abortions, by the way, are um, safe and very effective, um, like between 97 and 99% effective um, if uh, taken within the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. And it, it involves a two-drug regimen. So, so, so you have mifepristone um, or mifeprix in its, its uh, official um, non-generic name, um, and you, you take that first, um, and then that's followed about 24 to 48 hours later by misoprostol. Um, and both these drugs, by the way, have, have other indications besides medication abortion. Um, so um, misoprostol is available on prescription. Any, any physician with regular prescription uh, privileges can prescribe it and you, you can get it from any drugstore. Um, Mifepristone, on the other hand, was subject to special FDA regulation with, with a, a risk evaluation mitigation strategy or REM. Um, and this REM required up until December of last year for, um, it, it had a number of requirements, but the main one was that um, a, a person who wanted to terminate a pregnancy had to actually obtain the medicine in the office from an individual who could prescribe the drug, who, who had the, the, the special status to prescribe that drug. And so they had to go in person, even though these can be mailed and these are incredibly safe. Um, 
um, I, I think there were there were like 24 people who died in the course of having a medication abortion out of some some huge number. It was like like 3.7 million or something. It was, it was some huge number. I can go back and check. Um, and it, they just counted, you know, raw deaths. They didn't look at why the person died, and so it included, for example, homicides. It included, um, you know, opioid overdoses um, and, you know, deaths that, that had nothing to do with medication abortion. So, um, so, so the, 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 the in-person dispensation requirement was changed under the Biden FDA in December of 2021. So you can now get these medication abortion regimen, you can get it through the mail. Um, you don't have to come in person. You, you can go to your pharmacy and you, you can get this with a prescription. Um, a problem is that, of course, um, this is an action of, of the Biden FDA. Um, and while it takes a little while to change uh, the REMS, it, it, it's, it's a, a 10 to 12 month or you know, up to 18 month process, um, it can be changed by a subsequent administration. Um, so, you know, certainly we can we can take steps at the federal level, we can take steps at the state level to protect the right to an abortion in various ways. Um, but none are going to be as sound as having a constitutional right. Who, I mean, other than an obvious question of, of women in general, but who is most likely to be affected by an overturning of Roe v. Wade and Casey? Um, I, I think not all communities have the, or all states and all people in our country um, are, have the same right or the same ability to overcome some of these laws. Um, can you talk a little bit about what this impact would be on particular communities and who would be hardest hit by, by an overturning of Roe v. Wade? Professor Woolman? Sure. I mean, you know, like many, um, like the, the impact of this law will certainly disproportionately impact poor marginalized women, um, much more than others. Um, and, you know, the constituency that's going to be impacted by this is also the constituency that has the most dangerous risk during pregnancy. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's the idea of forcing women to have children who don't have access to safe medical care and have a much higher risk of serious injury or death during pregnancy. Um, you know, I think that over the last decade, we have seen, um, the rollback of access to abortion in so many, um, mostly Southern states, um, that we are kind of seeing what this is gonna look like. We've seen an increase, you know, going down to one abortion provider in a state. Um, we've seen a lot of different um, challenges to women getting access to, you know, having the, the things that are required of them are gonna be so hard and that's only gonna continue to be true. Um, if women are forced to leave their state and go to another state to get an abortion and they're surrounded by states where they're not legal, it becomes insurmountable in some cases um, for women to actually make this happen. Um, I think that, you know, some of the things to think about moving forward should Roe get overturned or Casey and we're in a situation where some states are providing abortions and other states aren't is going to be real advocacy around transportation of women um, to the states where abortions are legal. And I think that will be if you're thinking about something to do, um, you know, creating access to resources for women to travel is certainly something to think about. Um, I think some of the issues that we may run into with medical um, with the medical abortion option, or I'm sorry, with the medication option that Professor Hermer just talked about, which is great, and I certainly applaud the Biden administration for making that decision, is that we're just going to run into a bunch of new state laws, right? I mean, that's what I think will come. We'll have full faith and credit issues. We'll have states restricting access to medical providers from out of state. We'll have them making this illegal. And I think the same... Um, I think the same thing that we're seeing with with SB8 and, and sort of the criminalization almost of this is also something that we will see. Right. And so the first frontier will be it's illegal to have an abortion and then we'll move into criminalizing um, supporting individuals who are having abortions. And as soon as something becomes criminalized, taking it beyond just 
you don't have a right to an abortion, it's illegal in your state, but affirmatively making it a crime to help is that that will also disproportionately impact those communities of color who are at much greater risk of coming into contact with the criminal justice system. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, and you know, we need as well to be um, you know, cognizant of the fact that just because you criminalize abortion does not mean that they do not occur. They absolutely do. And we've seen this over and over in other countries, um, you know, that, that uh, either still criminalize abortion or previously did so. So, so, so in Ireland, in Argentina and Chile, um, and, and women continue to get, or they they did, you know, in cases, you know, um, um, Ireland is, is no longer illegal to to obtain an abortion um, in, in the first part of pregnancy. Um, they're still going to be getting abortions, and if you can get um, abortion, you know, the the medication abortion drugs through the mail and do it early enough. And so, if you go through, for instance, aid access. Um, or another group that provides um, medications to women in the United States um, who, who need them, who can't obtain an abortion otherwise in their state. Um, it will be illegal, um, but it's going to be difficult to track. And so what, what will states do to try to crack down on these sorts of organizations? That, that is also a real question. Yeah, kind of a broad, broader question that's been asked here. Um, and I think this relates to a, a couple of different areas, but we have a, a medical student who says um, that she's concerned about the misuse of language um, um, in a lot of our political dialogue, uh, legal dialogue and so forth as it relates to science, that we don't always use science or recognize science uh, when we're making some of these types of decisions. Um, she points to the example of partial birth abortion, which doesn't you know, exist in, in medical language, but it's something that's used. Um, I think we see in some ways a lack of understanding about science when it relates to vaccines in the discussions that were earlier this week. Um, I think it was this week or last week in the oral arguments on the vaccine mandate with the Supreme Court. Um, how does how do we overcome this lack of, of true understanding of the medical um, issues that underlie all these particular legal issues? It's a much harder question to answer, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, just just briefly, I've, I've, I've spoken more, so I want to let other other folks speak. But I I, I think that it's, it's not so much that this is a misunderstanding that if clarified would would lead to a change in in the discourse. Um, I, I think these are deliberate uses of various terms, and so you know, rather than calling it a complete dilation and extraction, calling it a partial birth abortion is it, it sounds much more gruesome. And you know, of course, uh, Gonzalez versus Carhartt was was a you know a very uh, explicit opinion regarding um, the the method in question. Um, so it, it would be it would be wonderful if we could get the actual scientific language um, used correctly in this discourse, and I, I think it would lead to it would, it would make it more difficult for certain arguments to be made. But I don't see this happening soon. Sometimes the court will dig into the science, and we certainly saw that I think in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, <clears throat> where Justice Kennedy on um, upholding. Uh, federal partial birth abortion statute went into an extreme amount of detail on purpose in describing uh, that procedure so that people would understand what he perceived to be the horror of that uh, procedure. Uh, so sometimes in order to make the point, the court will delve into uh, science and Justice Kennedy certainly did it in that case. Yeah, it, it seems like we have some medical students and some medical experts in our audience um, here today. And I think one, one person has raised the issue, what does the future look like for physicians um, and, and their liability and the problems that they may be facing? Um, how are they going to maneuver, be able to maneuver, you know, different state laws um, and so forth? What does, what impact will this have on the medical profession? Any thoughts? I don't know. I would just, 
Yeah, go ahead. There's a great documentary called After Tiller that talks about late-term abortion providers and if anyone is interested in sort of exploring what it's like from the perspective of abortion providers, I would highly recommend that movie. Um, I think it's, I, I mean, Professor Hermer probably knows this better. My sense is that it's, um, we're going to see a similar situation to what's been going on with the vaccine, right? That you are going to have well-trained doctors around the country who understand the science and the medicine confronted with the realities of a political base that does not acknowledge or agree with what they're doing. And I think that can be totally demoralizing and fatiguing. And, um, you know, I think we just need to look at the last two years in terms of what we've seen with, um, I mean, doctors, but school boards and sort of just the rejection of the idea and reliance on science and how that shakes out. Um, I think it could be really challenging um, for a lot of reasons for physicians. Um, and at the same time, this may be a galvanizing moment that people really decide this is what I want to do and, and look to ways to be able to provide um, abortions in places where it's lawful and safe. And, um, you know, I think it could go that direction too, right? Like the civil rights movement created a lot of attorneys. This could be a moment where individuals are motivated to take action in, on the medical front. Good, I, I got an interesting um, other constitutional question here is, could overturning Roe impact the commercial free speech doctrine established in Bigelow versus Virginia? given the advertisement for abortion in states uh, which do not allow it within their borders seems inevitable. Well, I don't think that uh, overturning Roe would have any impact on uh, the commercial speech doctrine. Um, that applies in situations, an intermediate scrutiny standard, if there's a, um, a content-based regulation of speech for the non-lawyers, then generally, uh, government entity that's regulating that speech has to meet a strict scrutiny standard. There has to be a compelling interest, narrowly tailored means, and so on. Well, there's a lesser standard in cases involving uh, commercial speech. Um, now, at least one of the justices, Justice Thomas, doesn't think that the commercial speech standard has any basis in the Constitution. If the court went anyway, it would be in favor of removing the commercial speech standard and providing full protection for commercial speech rather than less protection. So it seems to me that, uh, that those cases are going to, uh, uh, they're on, on safe ground, even if uh, Roe versus Wade is uh, overruled. There are interesting issues concerning fundamental right to travel. What if somebody needs to go out of state and the state tries to prohibit somebody from going to a different state for an abortion? Um, and of course, that would be pretty clearly unconstitutional. Yeah, another question asked, Shouldn't the court look at maybe public opinion or what the ultimate effect is going to be when overturning star decisis, um, overturning something and um, not following star decisis? Um, and also the question, what is the political ramifications you see if Roe v. Wade and Casey are overturned? I think the November 22 elections could look really, really good for Democrats, potentially. Potentially. So, I mean, politically, one, you know, I think this, this points to the need for local involvement in local politics. Um, get involved. Um, make sure that um, your laws in, in your community, um, in your city, in your state um, are, are, are ones that promote the way that you want to live your life and the way that you want your community to be. And, and, and you can't take these things for granted. Good. So before I want to close on a, a good note, but I want to ask one question before that. Um, if we see that Roe v. Wade and Casey get overturned, what are the next constitutional rights that are out there that might also face the same type of fate? Um, what kind of things, major changes could we possibly see with the Supreme Court um, on laws that affect us um, daily or rights that affect us daily? Are there things that we might, not even if it's not even related to the, the right of privacy or substantive due process, what other things 
might be on the horizon for us to see as major changes uh, by this court. Any predictions? Well, I think at least my own opinion is that the, uh, that the case is based upon fundamental rights that aren't specified in the constitution are on pretty solid ground. Um, it's interesting to see Lochner versus New York pop up in the uh, oral arguments, uh, well, but not surprising. But goodness, going back to 1923, Lochner in era court, by the way, deciding that uh, that case court decides that there are certain fundamental rights, right to control the upbringing of one children, one's children, right to marry, we run through the right to procreation and 1942 in Skinner versus Oklahoma, the right to privacy in Griswold versus Connecticut in 1964, and then ultimately the woman's right to choose. One might argue that the court um, strays from its core principles if it recognizes constitutional rights that aren't specified in the constitution. But then the Ninth Amendment says that there are rights that aren't set out in the Bill of Rights, the first eight amendments, that are subject to protection. That was something that the anti-federalists really wanted to be sure it was in the constitution. So there are certain fundamental rights that the court has recognized and even Justice Scalia on occasion grudgingly recognized those rights. I think they're on solid ground, um, but there are lots of decisions that aren't specifically rooted in the constitution. An interesting example, and this also popped up on the oral arguments, is New York Times Company versus Sullivan. Justice Sotomayor suggests that perhaps New York Times Company versus Sullivan, which provides significant protection, freedom of the press, freedom of speech in cases involving public figures, public officials, and public issues, that New York Times Company versus Sullivan might be subject uh, to overruling. Well, Justice Thomas would like to get rid of New York Times Company versus Sullivan. And why? Because it has no basis in the Constitution. All right, so there are certain rights, I think, that are subject to potential restriction. And it's really frightening to me when I see one of the great constitutional decisions of the court, the Sullivan case, subject to that sort of threat. But the basic rights, the right to marry, the right to procreation and so on, I think are on safe ground. That's my own opinion. Good. Now I want to end on kind of a, at least a positive note, because a lot of this may be this discussion may be a little bit more negative and, and depressing for um, people who believe in this uh, right to privacy and, and some of our medical students and physicians that are here today. What kind of things can everybody do um, if we were to see an overturning of Roe v. Wade? Professor Wilman talked a little bit about possibly getting involved in transportation for folks that needed that might have to go across state. Um, lines or so forth and how we might be able to support that financially or even doing the driving um, or transportation. What other things could we possibly do if we see this overturning at this point? And I mean, Wisconsin's a state that is gonna have an abortion um, prohibition uh, immediately. Um, and that might impact a number of our students and, and folks that are here today. I, I can address that a little bit and I guess just say something to the attendees here today, which is that um, even though it feels really bleak, it's really important to have hope and to appreciate um, the huge amount of resilience that we all collectively have and, and the power that we still have, even if Roe gets overturned. Um, a few things that come to my mind are um, be prepared so, you know, I, it is my hope that over the next six months to a year that the Mitchell community is routinely discussing and addressing what it may look like if Roe gets overturned. I think we want to create a community of support for individuals who may be impacted and who need um, support and just also being together because this is a big deal and this feels scary and horrible. And so like having a place where we can come together, um, but I think being prepared is gonna be really critical. So what are states gonna do where there are trigger laws that are gonna go into effect and how are they gonna, you know, day one be ready to address those with ways to help women either get pills through the mail, get to other states. Um, I think looking at a federal constitutional right is something that certainly could be looked into depending on how the, you know, what the, 
federal government looks like. Um, I think the Department of Justice may be able to do some work on federally provided abortions and try to think about ways that they could influence that. I think that um, being prepared to lit to to go to the legislature and and articulate why these rights matter. Be be ready to work with your local state legislators, as Professor Harmer said. Be really in touch with what's happening with next fall's elections in your local community, because there's a good chance that those individuals are going to be making some of these decisions for you. Um, those are some of the things that come to mind, um, you know, creating community and being ready and prepared. I, I kind of like to leave on that really high hope um, note um, for us today. Thank you all very much for being here. I really want to thank the Law Review for putting this together on this very important and timely um, topic. And I wanna thank our panelists and also Professor Hilbert for doing the introduction today. Um, thank you, I'm sure there'll be a lot more to talk about uh, as this case continues through the Supreme Court and when the decision comes out probably sometime in June. Um, everybody have a nice afternoon and it was great seeing you all, thanks again. Thank you. Special thank you to the Mitchell Hamlin Law Review's Diversity Committee Chair, Sheena Denny, and committee members Amy Anderson and Ben Larson, as well as Editor-in-Chief Catherine Ratz, for coordinating the Reproductive Rights Panel. We hope you enjoyed this special episode, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Just Us and the Law, a Mitchell Hamlin Law Review podcast. <laughs>